there's something within the intelligence um, research area. Um, there's, there was a, a psychologist named Carol who talked about the positive manifold. And the idea of the positive manifold is if you took all of these multiple intelligences and made a correlation matrix out of them, that, that on average, the, the correlations are positive. So on average, the math geniuses can play violin. Mm. And like on average, musicians are smart. On average, mm. and and you would, you know, and we all know dumb people in certain things who are brilliant in others. But at least on the average, in the if you take the whole population as a whole, the people who are brilliant writers tend to be better than average at math and music and mm. and such. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a return guest today. That means it's a good guest. When they return, otherwise, why? Why would I have them back if they weren't a good guest? So you already know this is going to be a good episode. Um, my guest today from the very first year of Here We Are. Uh, this is so we we go back almost eight years now um, at this point, and uh, and and now I I get to call my guest my friend. Hillary Anger Elfenbein is joining me today. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Hillary. Oh, it means a lot to me. Thanks for having me back. And so I don't even know how to set all of this up. But first of all, I'm I'm getting ready and I'm very excited for this uh, for this Mind Under Matter Campout Festival that I'm putting together with uh, with my co-host Ramin Nazer, and we got a wonderful team it's going to be here in raleigh at this majestic lakeside retreats september friday september 9th to sunday the 11th with camping until monday and i sent uh i, I sent an email to a lot of my past favorite um guests and i actually had just seen hillary not too long ago i I emceed a birthday part, a surprise birthday party of hers that I ruined the surprise for. And, <laughs> and, and so Hillary was one of the people that I reached out to. And she was like, I want to come to that. And this is perfect in so many ways because um, maybe I'll let you tell this part. But after our after our first interview and and kind of you you came and saw my live shows and and stuff a couple times i actually inspired you to to try out stand up comedy <laughs> you did you did so um I mean, I know, Shane, every time we see each other and I tell you this, you always apologize. But, you know. <laughs> it's just because I've been in the business too long and I'm I'm now a, a bitter old veteran comic. Don't do this to yourself. But you're in a different position. Yeah. You're doing it the I way mean, that comedy yeah. should be done. You're doing it for fun you you are still yeah, you're not quitting your professor job you're 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 having a lot of fun with it and yeah you know and i'll tell this story but i want to yeah. say as you say i'm doing it for fun there are moments when um, people have tried to hire me for things that didn't sound fun and the first thing out of my mouth is you know i i don't work for you i don't say that out loud yeah. but the, one of the nice things about being a professor is i don't have a boss normally yeah 
So in this, and I, I'm starting to think of comedy career is the wrong word, but I, you know, it's paid employment. I take it seriously. One of the nice things about being a so-called grown up in this scene is that you're fairly certain if you hire me that I'm, I'm going to have some professionalism to show yeah. up, show up on time, not show up drunk, not show up high and uh, to keep within my minutes. <laughs> <laughs> keep within your minutes now. Hey, just because you're an adult, I, I did a show. Uh, stand up science that I toured around with and um, and I would the structure of the show at the time, which I which I've changed. If I start touring with it again, it's going to be a little different than this. But I would do 15 minutes of science stand up and then I'd bring up an academic to do a talk about their work. But it wasn't meant to be comedy or anything, just a, talk, a fun talk about their work. Then I would improvise on it afterwards, and then I'd have another academic do that, and then we'd all get on stage together and have a fun conversation and Q&A with the audience. And I've changed the way I'm doing the show completely when I do bring it back because academics go way over their time yeah. they're worse than yeah, comedians not professional. <laughs> yeah, no. like <laughs> if, if, if you're a comedian and you go like a couple minutes over your time and you're new you may not get work at that club like ever again <laughs> and right. I mean, the, so the Helium Club, where I'm, I'm, I made it to the semifinals in the St. Louis. Congratulations! That's so cool. And you know, so I'm from Brooklyn. I like to think that if I'm one of the 30 funniest people in St. Louis, it's probably like the 11,084th funniest person in Brooklyn. That's not bad. Right yeah, <laughs> so. in the 11,000th percentile or something like that. But. They they deduct points if you go one second over and fifteen seconds over you're disqualified. Yeah, yeah. And so you have to be tight and consistent. And and so well, stepping back. So Shane, you changed my yeah. life in ways that again you apologize for when I mention it. But you know when when you interviewed me eight, eight years ago, I thought you know I'm, I'm in my line of work. You try to be prepared, and so I thought All right, I'm going to prepare for this by finding out who is this guy. And you know uh, our mutual friend, uh, you know had uh, you know, Pete McGraw from from Colorado had told me about you. But I thought, all right, I want to know who this guy is. So so my husband and I started going on YouTube and watching clips of you, and. I remember thinking another thing I, I have to it, apologize like, for. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved, you know, getting dug with high. Yeah. I loved your, I, I can't remember if it was Conan that you were on. Yeah. I saw a whole bunch of clips and I remember thinking, wow, this just looks like, I, I mean, he's going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy it, but also, wow, you can just get up there and, and do this. And by this, I mean, you know, I, I'm in front of, I'm on stage all the time, right? Mm -hmm. As a professor, I'm in front of the room, but you know, I own that room. I have a credential. They, I teach electives. They decided, they chose to sign up for this class. Often I have a waiting list. And so they felt lucky to be in that room mm -hmm. with this person. And, and I, I control the guidelines of the room, right? No laptops. Yes, you can eat, right? All of these things that, uh, that, and then I grade them, right? So they're actually on the hook to be liked by me and not the other way around. Right. And I thought, you know what? What happens if you take uh, all of that away? Yeah. <laughs> you know, stand up. I mean, you go in there, you got nothing. You got a microphone and nothing. And you have maybe 20 seconds to prove your relevance before they tune you out. Yeah. And in St. Louis, no one heckles you. I've been maybe heckled once. Mm -hmm. You don't get heckled. It's you not get a ignored, common thing. Right? It's yeah. 
it's Midwestern polite. If you're not doing well, people just get their phone out. And, and that to me is worse because oh, yeah. I want to be the center of attention. I'd actually rather be heckled than be ignored. Yeah, yeah. So, and that, which is actually why I have a no laptop policy in my class. It's not necessarily for, for um, educational value. If any of my former students are listening to this, it's because I want to be the center <laughs> of attention. <laughs> well, so, you know, e- ego aside, it it really is hard to manage the energy of a room if someone is on their phone and and one person being on their phone that doesn't just affect them that's other people seeing their light thinking in their head like why is this person on their phone how rude of that is that it becomes this whole distraction for others as well and yeah i i mean i kind of i kind of started getting away from comedy clubs um, lucky enough to get away from comedy clubs just, uh, um, after, you know, a decade and a half of doing it because it was so, uh, it was so much babysitting <laughs> often, <laughs> you know, whereas like when I did my independent shows where people were coming with an intention of like, Oh, we're going to hear a show with this theme or there's going to be science scientists there. They know what they're walking into. It's a it's a little bit different than like, oh, let's go and see a random comedy show. And and a couple of the people are not at all your cup of tea or whatever. And so you don't really know what to expect with a given act. Could be anything. Could be anything. (laughs) So, Shane, so that was about eight years ago. And then what happened about six years ago in my career was that I got an endowed chair. So what that means in a university setting is that, so I'm the John and Ellen Wallace distinguished professor. John and Ellen Wallace are real people. I've met them and they're lovely people. And they gave WashU $3 million to buy the naming rights to job titles for professors. So that means I, I'm like a stadium. Somebody paid for the naming <laughs> rights to my job title. That's amazing. And, yeah, I, 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 I hope if anyone out there has like, I don't know, $3,000, they can probably buy the naming rights for something that I do. <laughs> Yeah. All right. And by the way, it's only 2 million. If you leave the word distinguish out, I'm not even making this up. It's two. They had to pay 3 million because the the word distinguish. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Are you serious? Another million for the word distinguished. Wait, so how I'm sorry. Well, you, why am I apologizing? You, this is your fault for bringing up an interesting, peculiar thing. Yeah. Um, so, so hold. How does this happen? Hey, how how, do, how does this? Is this just any university has like? Hey, any of them one that wants to name positions? Yes. Here's yes. what our price is, and here's how much. It- yes. And for Harvard, it's I last heard ten million dollars. For Washu, it's yeah, two to three. Yeah, yeah. It's every school has its price, and they'll they'll occasionally reject it. Like I think, and I could be wrong about this. I, I'm fairly sure that Harvard turned one down that was from the Bin Laden family, for example. Oh I mean, yeah, they, yeah. They'll very rarely, you or know, like Jeffrey Epstein porn, gave money to Harvard. Dot com or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Pornhub the... distinguished professor <laughs> yeah. of marketing would would be turned down. But, uh, <laughs> But what happens when you do the 
So this is the highest, um, the highest promotion that a university has. Mm-hmm. They throw you a party and it's kind of, this is your life. Or you, you get your friends and family fly in. Uh, my mother wasn't well and she didn't come, but, uh, my, you had, you have family, you have friends and they invite, they invite the, the community, the university and the chancellor's there that, you know, that everyone's there, the dean's there and you give a half hour speech. And so I was 44 at the time and thought, um, yeah, all right. I, I've reached the top of my profession. There is no further advancement. I mean, you can start to do other things. You can add to your portfolio of activities, but there's no, there's no more promotions. And I'm, I, I think I'm a, the people in my family tend to live till their late age. So I'm, I'm about at my halfway point and there's, mm-hmm. there's no further advancement in my chosen profession. So, so, that, so I thought, you know, all right, what's on the bucket list? And the thing about being a tenure professor, you can be fired if you, if you do something that's worth getting arrested for, you know, except, <laughs> except money for grades or, you know, yeah, any kind yeah, of, yeah. you know, if you start, I don't know, dealing drugs uh, to the students, I, there's all kinds of things you, you could get fired Yeah, these for, are seemingly good ideas to deal, deal <laughs> drugs for grades yeah. or something. But, but the thing you can't be fired yeah. for is sucking at your job. That's amazing. At that point, you can suck at your job. And, you know, there are things you can get fired for, but, but poor perform, poor job performance isn't one of them. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, what's, so what now? And, and there were two things that stuck at, that, that's, that struck me. One was, um, becoming a therapist, like delivering therapy and, I did my PhD joined in psychology, but I didn't do the clinical track as I had originally planned because um, I realized I was going to be one of those people who just got too caught up and in other people's problems and that I would be one of the many, many burnout cases out there. So I didn't end up doing that, but it was out of fear. And I thought, you know what, I'm 44. I I had to face fears. What am I afraid of? And so that I, I still may do. Um, but the, you, you just realistically, you have to go back and, and my PhD courses were so old, they wouldn't have qualified. I'd have to start from the beginning. And then there's a one-year internship. It just wasn't going to happen. But the other thing I thought, and this chain, this is where you fit in was stand up, stand up. That was on my, and it, and it came, it wasn't like I really thought about it. It just out of thin air. It was so obvious. So the first thing I did, you give a half hour talk at this and everyone's there and everyone's stuck listening to you, right? The, the head of the university, second in charge, your dean, everyone's just stuck there for half an hour. And these things are horrible. Most of them. I mean, my friends who are, may listen to this, who've done, I mean, they're generally just, just the worst because mm-hmm. it's somebody, it's an academic talking about their, their life and their work and, and their, they're trying to make it interesting. And then there's the person who gave the two to $3 million is there and their whole family is there. And they're listening to this, like the kids, like the grandchildren of the people who gave the money are listening to this. All these people are just stuck there listening to whatever shit you're saying about your academic research. I, these things are just, just really hard. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to actually treat this like my half hour comedy special debut. <laughs> and I timed it. If I, I I've watched the video, it is 30 minutes. Oh, Oh, Oh. And I, I got the emphasis on every syllable. I, I timed, I, I rehearsed it. I, I even did things like instead of asking questions, I would blow through the way I'm, I'm, I'll give you an example. Like I, I showed my Sanskrit and we're going to talk about Sanskrit in a minute. I, I showed my, my name in Sanskrit. And I, instead of asking, isn't this beautiful? I, I said, and, and, 
And of course you're thinking that this is beautiful, right? So you can just keep going. But I, I, I left room for when I knew people would laugh. I mean, I just took this so seriously and you know, people hate watching themselves, but I, I did watch it all half hour later. And I thought this, this was just one of the best moments of my life. That's wonderful. Because, because you know, you a half hour you straight out of the gate. See, that's, that's the <laughs> advantage of having so much public speaking experience already and being older um, as well and just being more comfortable. And for me, a lot of it was about facing fears. And mm -hmm. one thing, if, if you probably talk to my colleagues around here, they would say they wish I were a little more fearful. I'm pretty fearless. You know, there'll be meetings where no one speaks and I'll be the one person who speaks. Or there are people like, actually, at, um, you know, we, we have this horrible Supreme Court ruling, right? This is just a few weeks ago. And I wrote a letter to the chancellor, the head of our university, talking about how I felt like we needed to actually be bold and add abortion coverage to our health plan rather than retreat. Mm -hmm. So things like that. So, you know, I, I'm fearless. That's like not a good idea, right? To write a letter to the, the chief executive of your organization to, to ask for something that's, that's kind of illegal as of a few weeks ago. But, but so I went into this thinking, all right, this is about facing fears. You know, I, I love teaching. I'm winning teaching awards, but what if they're just being polite because I grade them? You know, what if you just stripped all of that away? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, all right, I just got to do this. And I went in and I was still drinking then and sometimes too much. And I, I went in and just there, there's one friend I ever for the first half year ever even let me see. It was so much easier being with strangers. And this was somebody, her name is Elizabeth. I adore her. She had been my teaching assistant for long enough. And she once said, I could listen to your voice all day. And I thought, all right, later I kind of remembered them, but I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on that. And she, she came up, but for the most part, I, I went in and it was, um, but, but like, I think the first time I went up, I talked about how, um, one time I got stopped in the airport for um, having something that looked weird that had been a gift from uh, a university. I, I gave a talk and I, I, sh I yelled as loud as I could at the secure at the TSA agents. Don't worry, that's just my vibrator. <laughs> and everyone around me. And, and, and when I think about the the sets that I've done that have gone well, they're they all they all have at their core something that really happened in real life that people laughed at when I yeah. said, and then I kind of build around that. But it, it was terrible. But I, I was I thought you know what it it um. It, it lit me on fire and you later said, ah, oh, you know, it's that addiction, right? You just the the, the crowd. Yeah, you get addicted to it. And, yeah. Uh, but I started, um, I, I mean, the thing that was, that's really been life changing about it for me is that, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a real bubble as a professor, as a mom, you know, I have two children in private school. Everybody's from somewhere else. It's educated couples, the sort of middle to upper middle class existence and, um, in the university, you know, people are different on all kinds of surface levels and maybe they're different in their early upbringing, but we're all pretty similar now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, comedy, it's, it's the most diverse environment I've ever been in. And it's not just in areas like, like race or gender, but actually for me, a big deal has been age. So people are all different ages and, I mean, you know, who, who's out at a bar at midnight on a Wednesday? It's not usually career moms like me, I'm, but I'm out at bars on Monday at 1230 in the morning was one of my favorite open mics was when that ended. And, uh, but who's out there? It's mostly 20 something year old hipsters. Mm -hmm. 
And when I was 20, I was not a hipster. I was looking down, focusing, getting my PhD, figuring out, you know, paying my dues, working in my PhD. There were times I was working 100 hour weeks and on average, maybe 75, 80 hour weeks. I was not cool. I had no sense of humor. As a kid, I had no sense of humor, Shane. Like I, I, uh, you know, my, my father died when I was young and then my mom was basically off like smoking pot and I didn't always know where she was or I was before cell phones. I'm 50 now. And I, I literally didn't know where she was quite a lot of the time. And so I was kind of looking after my brother, making sure he got his homework done. I was like doing, you know, doing the grocery shopping and I didn't know how long my mother would be away. I actually didn't know when she was coming home, but she would go grocery shopping before she left and she would leave a stack of $20 bills under the ashtray, right? This was back when people smoked, just leave it. And the number of $20 bills sort of signaled to me how long she was probably going to be gone. So that that's that was my childhood. And I had no sense of humor because I had to be serious, right? I was mm-hmm. in some ways the parent in, or if my brother listens, it's sort of a co-parent in, in this environment. If your brother's so, listening, mm-hmm. give him a little credit too. But yeah, if he's not listening, yeah, come on, it was mostly you. <laughs> but I was certainly my own parent. Yeah. And, and so, but I'm I, now I'm spending time with these people who are from, uh, you know, they're, they're in their twenties exploring and growing in, in, in all these ways. And, and I don't mother them. I don't, there, there may be about eight of us in the scene. Well, that'd be who, weird you if know, you just went around going, mothering people, that would be no way, <laughs> no way to make friends yeah. on the comedy scene. <laughs> Someone just shows up and starts mothering me around. No way. Who's this lady? Absolutely not. I'm glad that idea hasn't occurred to you because it's a bad one. Uh, so uh, but but yeah so it's it's i mean it uh for i i'm not um i'm not as passionate and interested about stand-up comedy at the moment as other projects that i have going on i need to get more i want to do a bunch of like new material during the camp out and, and and everything too but um but I just have so many other things going on that I've sort of lost interest um, over the last few years because I'm like, oh, I've done that. But but, but when you when you bring up the diversity of, of people that you meet, um, it's it really that that's that was the most life changing thing for um, for me. I, I mean, I got to travel the world and go to every comedy club and every every dive bar, every fancy place every everything in between and um and you you just learn a lot being being able to uh being able to interact with and and comics are usually like if you're just up for hanging out after the show comics usually are uh good at getting to know one another and making new friends and everything so yeah it's cool i feel like we know each other so intimately you know the the scene in st louis we know each other so intimately there there are probably 20 people whose sets i could deliver and and who could deliver mine and and the kinds of things you talk about on stage are so deeply personal that when you get when you meet somebody you you immediately know some of the most intimate details of their lives Mm -hmm. so so you yeah it's it's, there's no small talk oh yeah i mean you you, like you said you gotta you gotta open a show and kind of let people know who you are in a very short amount of time to get people's attention so uh often uh often that comes with a lot of vulnerability and getting to know people um faster than usually happens in most normal social interactions but hillary 
This is a science podcast. We got to get into some science as well because I'm I'm so thrilled that you're going to come because you're going to be a a double threat. You'll give a science talk and I'll have you uh, do some spot at the uh, the stand up stage as well. We're still working out exactly what time of day that we're going to do stand up spots, how long they're going to be. I think they're going to be like showcasey type things, but um, we're, we're still figuring that out. But I'm excited to have you there. But I'm I'm um, especially excited to uh, to for um, for your science talk because you're going to be talking about emotional intelligence, right? And so, first of all, be- before all that, no one even knows what your background is right now. I assume people didn't listen to our episode from seven and a half years ago or whatever, and and tell people uh, tell people what you do for a living. Sure, sure. So I am, um, I, uh, I'm in the organizational behavior group of the business school at Washington University in St. Louis. My training is in a joint um, business and psychology PhD. And so I was trained in experimental social psychology and personality psychology. And then in addition, I did a master's degree in statistics. And before that, uh, and this was all at Harvard, I did um, undergrad degrees in physics and Sanskrit language. And I, I can tell Sanskrit that you know, is the silliest she, thing to study. You're you, so ridiculous. You know more than I don't anyone even else in the you. world that I have forgotten it all. I know. I was. I, I, I made. That. I made a joke. I made a joke about, at, at Hillary's birthday party that like. <laughs> What a smart mm-hmm. thing to learn because no one can call you on your BS. You just tell people you know Sanskrit and no one's going to be the wiser. And then I looked up yeah. something to say mm-hmm. to you, which was happy birthday in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know it. You had no I idea. Do it. You know, part of it is that I'm used to. Well, there's two things going on. One is that I'm used in, to in front of everyone you knew got yeah. to find mm-hmm. out that you're a Sanskrit fraud. I'm a fraud, you know, if I didn't have that piece of paper. But I feel like I've lived so many lives that I look back and I think, did that really happen? And Sanskrit's one of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I got interested in that. And I know we're going to go into science. I got interested in Sanskrit because there's this there's this book, the Bhagavad Gita, which is, it's very famous. And it's part of the Mahabharata, the longest poem ever written. And there's this part of the book where... Um, Krishna is like a chariot. He's this God and he's the chariot for the main character. And, and at one point he basically says, like, do you want to see the real me? And, and, and Arjun, who, for whom he's the charioteer says, yes. And then Krishna just becomes crazy. And just, I mean, like you see these images of like everything in the universe. And it was like, ah, oh, yeah. Okay. Now I know who you are. And I just thought that just captured me this idea that wow like you're seen what is it what does it feel like to be a very complicated weird person and to be seen like i'm i'm so um i i've often felt like i can't let people get to know me because if they do they'll see that whole big crazy come out and be like whoa i'm sure everyone (laughs) feels that way i feel well i i so I felt seen and, yeah. and you, you can read, you can read that book within a year of taking Sanskrit. The, the grammar is actually pretty simple in that book compared to, and then I, I, I found out that it's the most scientifically rule governed natural language. And so there are a lot of like science nerds in there. And I double majored in physics more or less to have something I could tell people when they asked, because years later, it's intriguing and funny. And it's like a party trick and people remember this about you. But at the time I was very embarrassed by it. And 
just, it was the secret I was keeping that, uh, I, I was, that I was letting myself be completely useless. And, you know, it's $20,000 a year to go to Harvard and I was squandering it. And I needed something to tell people. <laughs> I was yeah. squandering it on something people, why are you wasting your time on that? You know, my grandmother came from Russia with only what she could carry, right? And then here I am, um, spending her money on learn Sanskrit. kind of learning dead languages not enough yeah. to handle happy birthday but yeah well <laughs> we, we call them classical not dead but yes uh, now by the way and i will say for whoever's listening that part of the the other thing that was going on shane when you were at my birthday and you called me out on sanskrit was that i didn't know i was having a surprise party i knew that it was going to happen, but I didn't know what, and I didn't know when or where. And, and people say, Oh, were you pretending to be surprised to be polite? Oh, no, because I would have washed my hair, first of all. Right. I didn't, <laughs> but then the second is I thought we were having dinner with this, you know, sweet couple that we know. And so I took an edible. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, I remember that. Yeah, that was the Sanskrit. I never you, actually read Sanskrit high. <laughs> I, I I remember that. But I, I, you were like, I took an edible. <laughs> like, well, what's going on? Everyone was, uh, we were we were in a what what was the what was the place? Coca. It's the center for. Um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting what it stands for. It's this lovely like theater. Yeah, um, there's like people eating hors d'oeuvres and stuff mm -hmm. like that and everyone's mm. dressed in and very stylish like mm -hmm. suits and dresses and things like that <laughs> and, and you are like whoops i'm baked <laughs> the best part is when i saw you outside and uh you had a mask on and you came to me and and you said uh I i'm here and i didn't recognize you with the mask on and then i realized Holy moly! Like this is holy yeah. shit! Like yeah. what's happening? I'm not I blew sure I it. I no, thought by the time you were outside, you all, you already knew that it was a thing, yeah. and I was, was the first wonderful. one seeing seeing my masked bearded face was the first. But it was meaningful that Dan hired you to to do this because he knew that 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 um you had been such an influence. But you know, getting back to this, so what is it I'm trained to do? So I I not having any. Uh, not having any marketable skills coming out of either physics or Sanskrit. I worked after college for this, this, um, consulting firm for a couple of years because that's just the kind of thing you do when you don't know what to do. And I became captivated there by not, not the market research we were doing or decision support tools and all that. I became fascinated by how people were relating to each other in the workplace. And I felt like I just was watching mistakes all around me that had to do with emotion, not, um, not using emotion to, to develop social connectivity, but using emotion to actually be productive and get your job done. So things like, mm. um, I had a supervisor who was monotone and all of his supervisees thought he was critical of them. And, uh, and he actually, when I started working with him, he actually came to me and said in his monotone, I just want you to know, Hillary, I have a monotone. I can't do anything about it. And there'll be times when you think I'm, I disapprove of something and it's just my monotone. So please ask me what I think of things before you assume I don't like things. And I, I was captivated by that. And, uh, you know, the, mm. the relationships within teams, um, that is I interesting. saw. I saw people across cultural boundaries in these global teams mistake um, emphasis for anger. You know, some people just, uh, 
some people, when they raise their voice, that's just how they say they care, right? And other people think they're, they're angry. But then people, uh, something really dramatic happened though, which changed my career trajectory, which is my office got moved to be next to the mailboxes. And at the time, so this would have been in 1995, email existed, but attachments did not. And so we would like go to the FedEx, like last FedEx pickup to send drafts of things. And, and if you wanted to give a memo or something you're working on to your, your colleague, you would print it out on paper from trees and, and you would walk it over to the mailboxes and you would check your mailboxes like maybe twice a day. So I was right there and people would just stop by and talk about what was on their mind. And usually what was on their mind were just people things going on at work. And I realized this was the part of the day I enjoyed the most. So I started getting sweets to just entice people to come into my office and tell me all about what was going on. So I realized this, I, I didn't need to go and get a PhD in psychology. This is what I love all day. And, and so I stuck with this notion that we use emotion to get our jobs done. Things like, you know, how do I know in client services, you talk a lot about managing expectations. Like, how do I know I've managed the client's expectations? It's like surprise. If you see someone's eyes light up in surprise, you have done a poor job managing expectations. Things like, uh, how do I know how do I know when I get to speak, right? How do I know if people look like they're listening to me or, or how do I know when someone else wants to speak? What kind of nonverbal signals of eagerness or, you know, how do I know if somebody's serious or sarcastic, right? Those kinds of tone of voice things and facial expressions. And I just felt like that was so intriguing. So I, I did my dissertation about how well people recognize the emotional signals of their teammates. So uh, I, can I, I stop you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what so uh, wait so so wait so you got a degree in sanskrit and physics but then you gave your dissertation no because the physics and sanskrit were undergrad and then when i worked at consulting firm i never went back to those topics and so after consulting i just started a phd in psychology oh okay and it was so my you can. I, I never, I never mm-hmm. went to college, so I don't, I don't know the structure of how things work. So you can have undergrads and other things, and then just mm-hmm. go for your PhD in a totally different thing altogether. Yeah. Um, usually you can't, but um, I, I took a, I did. I, I spent some summer. I did some summer classes, kind of catching up on the psychology front. And uh, I think, you know, the way that my mentor described it, she said, well, you know, you did physics and Sanskrit at Harvard. I, you know, I graduated in the top 24 of my class. We figured we'll just pick it up. (laughs) So normally you don't, (laughs) but 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 you get some benefit of the doubt, you know? And, Mm. uh, and so, so I got back captivated with two ideas around emotional intelligence. The first is that some people are better than others. Right. And that, that idea was Daniel Goldman had just published his book, Emotional Intelligence, like the year before that. And people were starting to get, get, um, interested in the idea that you know, this is an ability. Some people are better at it. Some people are worse at it. And by it, I'll go, I, I mean, social skills broadly speaking. And there are a lot of different skills within it, which, which we can talk about. But I'll, I'll just say that, that there was a, a, a perspective on it, like, this, some people have these smarts, some people don't. And then where I'm trying to come in, I'm trying to come into this field from that perspective, but also taking the perspective that we're better with some people than we are with others. So like maybe I'm not good at reading the room, but I can read you. 
and you can read me and no one, we don't, we neither of us understand what anyone else is thinking or saying, but, but you and I can read each other. So that was, that's, those are these very two different perspectives that I've, I've been taking uh, uh, to the question of emotional skills. So, you know, at this, the festival, I'm going to be talking about what, what even is emotional intelligence? And the general thinking is that it's a, it's a, it's a grab bag of skills that all have to do with being effective through your emotions. So there's self-awareness. So some people have no idea that they just, that they're shouting right now. They have no idea that they're angry. They have no, you know, they kind of bottle up their feelings, not self-aware. Then there's emotion recognition. So can I read the room? Can I read other people's signals? So their, their body language, their tone of voice, facial expressions. Then there's emotional expression, you know, which is not about being expressive as a tendency, but it's about if I want to get my message across, can I do it? And it's basically acting ability. So um, people who can, if if I'm angry, can I get that in my tone of voice? Or if I if I want to be pleasant, like if I'm a flight attendant and I want you to think that I'm happy right now when I'm not, can I get happy cues out to you? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's another one. And then there's emotion regulation, which, which is you know, huge, right? And there's regulating yourself and then there's trying to regulate others. So regulating yourself. So can you, can you calm yourself down? Can you um, psych yourself up? And, uh, and then emotion, trying to regulate others, regulation of others is about, you know, can I soothe other people? Can I get them excited? Can I, if I'm a sports coach, can I get them angry? And every, any emotion that I might want another person to feel, are there ways that I can get them to do that? And then the last is, is basically empathy. Do I know if I send this email, how somebody will react to it? And mm. emotional understanding is what it's called. It's sort of fancy name for empathy. And you know, we, we think about empathy as having three layers. The first layer is, is can I turn the table around and see the world through your eyes? And that's what really we're talking about here. But actually empathy has two more layers, which is, so can I, do I know how you're feeling? But then second, do I even care? And then third, am I going to do something about it? And those mm. two are, are not what we think of in within emotional intelligence. Empathy is really a matter of like, can I predict how you would feel if such and such uh, event happened? Uh, I'm I'm sorry. Say those. This is very interesting to me. Say say those say, say those three aspects of sure. uh, of empathy sure. one more time. So the first is, do I know how you would be feeling? Mm-hmm. And the second is, do I care how you would be feeling? And the third is, do I do anything about how you're feeling? Hmm. Okay. And the first of those is really an ability. The second and third of those are choices. The Mm. first is, is, can I know if you told me about a scenario and the tests for these give you a scenario and they'll give you a few sentences and say, how would this person feel? And people who can do that are the people who get blindsided less often in the workplace Mm. because, you know, this happens to me. I'll I'll get a response to an email and I'll be like, holy shit, I didn't think this person was going to respond that way. And that would be a failure of emotion, understanding, failure of empathy. Mm. But then, you you, you know, this this is, uh, here's something I bet you have a fair amount of thoughts on is, is how we measure intelligence. We have Mm. these IQ tests Mm. and, if I, I I've taken IQ or similar tests where I, I feel like it's it's uh, 
it's things that were like built for me to do well. Like I, I get, I get math, I get like uh, spatial reasoning and stuff like that. And it, it seemed it's, it's always, it's always seemed like, um, I don't know if it's appropriate to say like, uh, or fair to say like a, a kind of a male driven um, assessment of, of value, but it always, it always seemed like, it's just like, it's sure not capturing like a whole lot of the skills that social primates actually need in life. It's, it's capturing like, what's your ability to memorize good words and what's your ability to, um, to like use tools essentially and think and think in that way is what a typical, intelligence tests. But some like. of those tests, some of those aspects of the test are stereotypically female skills, like the spatial reasoning part. If you think about if you're, um, you know, knitting, for example, those people have incredible spatial reasoning skills. Mm. But it was Howard Gardner who coined this idea of multiple intelligences. And mm. he, he argued that you shouldn't just look at math and verbal and spatial, but you should look at areas like music. And and like athletic intelligence, even yeah, it's like I I, I have like uh, like I'll I'll take an IQ test any day over like <laughs> testing my coordination or, <laughs> or 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 all of the what was the other thing you you uh, you said right before the athletic, oh, athletic and music. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, music abilities. Oh my God! Please never test my music abilities. But we all, it's. It's clearly so important to us, yeah. and we can clearly see these people that that would that were probably failures in in most aspects of of you know traditional education or whatever else that are absolute geniuses um, uh, when you put a guitar in their hand or something. You know what's interesting though that you say that 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 some people are very high and some and low on others, and I think that's vivid. Those examples are vivid. But there's something within the intelligence um, research area. Um, there's there was a, a psychologist named Carol who talked about the positive manifold, and the idea of the positive manifold is if you took all of these multiple intelligences and made a correlation matrix out of them, that that on average the the correlations are positive. So on average, the math geniuses can play violin, hmm. and like on average, musicians are smart. On average, hmm. and and you would. You know, and we all know dumb people in certain things who are brilliant in others, but at least on the average, in the if you take the whole population as a whole, the people who are brilliant writers tend to be better than average at math and music and hmm. and such. That's interesting. I mean, I, I've seen I've seen studies about you know I've 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 seen some I've seen some interesting stuff about uh, I I think. Um, like someone like Jeffrey Miller or something like that, like 20 years ago did some study that was taking, taking um, like those New York times caption contest things and having people write the best captions and then having people evaluate, which were the best captions and also giving an IQ test. And the people that had the funniest captions typically had a, had a higher IQ, but yeah, so that's, I, I don't know, huh? I, I guess I would have never thought about it. Like, I, I, I guess I've always thought of like, 
I, I guess I've always thought of intelligence as like, like when I think about the word genius, for example, I don't think about it as a person. I think about it as like a moment. I think about it as a connection. And the people that we would talk about as geniuses are people that are just um, better at collecting those moments and and more just kind of organized and or 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 better at following through on on yeah. those moments in some and way. And what you're saying is very consistent with the research on creativity that that a lot of what we think of as creative is when people take ideas from multiple places and put them together. So it's not mm -hmm. that they it's not that they came up with something out of thin air. It's that they took something that was super obvious over, um, you know, over in this neighborhood and they, they applied it to some problem in this other neighborhood. And it was mm -hmm. groundbreaking in the second neighborhood. But it, in, and there are these examples like uh, Thomas Edison had the light bulbs were all falling out of the, they're all, all the light bulbs were falling out until somebody said, Hey, Hey, you know, they have these screw tops on kerosene uh, containers. Let's make screw, you know, let's, let's have light bulbs screw in instead of stick them in. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, that's creative. Uh, that <laughs> is creative. And it seems so obvious in hindsight. But yeah, a lot of creativity wow. is taking something that's obvious that's over fun. here and applying it over there. And so it's just what mm -hmm. you're saying. You know, it's not that these people are geniuses. It's that these people are observing and combining and putting things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it, it also seems like, because um, there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, I feel like people a little bit less familiar with science. Sometimes uh, they're like, well, a lot of these big breakthroughs were people that bucked the trends or whatever else and did and thought outside the box and every, and, and that's, that's like, that, that's true on a level, but usually those people were experts in that field. <laughs> And knew it very, very well. They weren't just sitting around watching like YouTube videos of conspiracy theories and like, I've got it. I've figured out the whole world. They were experts in that field. And it was just their idea was a little too novel to be accepted in that field at the time. Not that they were like, not that it came out of nowhere. Yeah. So I want to tell you actually about the first study I ever did. So the first yeah. thing I did my first year in grad school is now written up in Psych 101 textbooks. So this is like, you would think I'm, I've got to be a one hit wonder because you can't do this a second time. But what, what it was, was just like what you're saying. So I, um, I lived in India and I had the sense that, and I think anybody with a passport pretty much has the sense that we express emotions differently across cultures and that there are more misunderstandings across cultures than there are with people from your own culture. And so I wanted to write a dissertation about how um, global teams are challenged by the way people use emotion differently across cultural groups. So I was ready to do this. And then my advisor, my, my initial advisor, Bob Rosenthal, he's so famous that people don't know who he is. He discovered experimenter bias. All these double blind you know, medical studies, that was him. And but when, actually it was in the 60s when he discovered and people thought he was you know, talking about ESP and psychedelics. Like how could your, how could your participants know what you expect them to do? And that got him interested in nonverbal behavior as the mechanism where your participants know um, what you expect of them. So I, I went to him with this idea and he said, oh no, Hillary, you know, un emotions universal. It's biologically determined. There are no differences across culture. And I thought, well, 
that didn't make sense. So I asked him where he, where that mm. came from. So I, I read this, these articles and they all cited people who cited people who cited people who cited this study from 1972. So I went to the study from 1972 and it made no sense. And so I, mm -hmm. so I thought, well, I think people are better at understanding emotions expressed by people from their own cultural group. And so I started with what's called a meta-analysis where I didn't collect my own data. I found other people's data and just combined it all as if it had been one big imaginary study. And there were so many examples. So, so Paul Ekman, who's very famous psychologist, what he did was in the sixties, he took photographs of Americans, white mm -hmm. Americans from San Francisco, ex expressing happiness, sadness, fear, anger, surprise. And he took these photos on a round the world tour and everyone could recognize them at greater than one sixth accuracy. And then he declared emotion is universal. And, and he and he got a, he 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 got quite a big name for himself within yeah. within science uh, for doing this as well. And this and this was this was kind of um, uh, it was th a big this deal. Be this became yeah. dogma. I feel yeah. like for a while. Yeah, right? and it was a very big deal. But when if you look at his original data, what you'll see is that yes, everyone did better than one out of six. Actually, except one group that his co-author published in some obscure place that that Edmund never was willing to to put his name on. Um, this, mm -hmm. There was a, a, a tribal group in Sumatra that looked at all these photos and said, "Yeah, these white people are all angry." All of them angry, all of them. But for the most part, people did better than one out of six, mm. which is like throwing darts at a wall. They did better than that. But when you when you look at the data, the people from Europe don't do quite as well as the Americans, and the people from Asia do much much worse than the Americans. And there's this what I ended up calling in group advantage, and but no one does worse than than throwing darts at a wall, but that people do worse, the more culturally distant they are from the source of the stimuli. So hmm. this, had, Paul Ekman later in a sentence fragment in some article admitted that he didn't publish the statistics that would help you actually test that. Um, but then there was someone named David Masumoto came along and, and looked and he's Japanese American. And so he, he looked at how poorly the Japanese participants did on all these tests and started writing articles about what's wrong with Japanese people. So I'm reading mm. this and thinking all of this is just full of shit. And David, I hope you're listening. All of this is just full of shit. And so, so I, I took, I took 180, I'm forgetting the exact number of samples of times that people borrowed stimuli either accidentally or on purpose, basically had a cross-cultural study. A lot of these, I'll give you an example of an accidental one. There was a study of earedness. So, you know, we're like right-handed or left-handed. It turns out we're right-eared or left-eared. And there was a Japanese test of earedness that mm. played positive and negative tones and you had to recognize them and you could see who, which, which ear you did better. And then there's a really, um, Israeli researchers had no idea that this was that that this would be culturally specific. So they borrowed this Japanese test of eridness and the Israelis did worse. So it's, there's not it's not a problem with Japanese people recognizing emotions. And David was writing about how they were repressed and wait, blah, blah. <laughs> I, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, wait, eridness is there's cross-cultural variation in eardness? No, there's not in the eardness. There was cross-cultural variation in the average score on the test. So, you know, what, what, I, I'm, I'm not following. Okay, Can so, you explain that? 
So in Japan, there was this test of earedness. They played positive and negative tones yeah. into your right ear and left ear. And right. they saw which ear you did better on. And it right. was like nine tenths people did better with their right ear. Okay. But there was Makes an sense. average, maybe let's say the average was 90% of the time you got the right answer. Then they took this test to Israel. And again, nine out of 10 or so people did better with their right ear. But now the average score was less, more like 80%. So okay. that 10, that 90 minus 80, that 10% is what I would call in-group advantage. That they just did worse on average. The eeredness part was consistent. Yeah. That that 90% were better with their right ear. But the part where they just didn't get these Japanese vo vocal tones as accurately as the oh. Japanese participants did. Oh, so it was Japanese vocal tones that they were testing. And it, it, okay, that's where the wires were getting crossed. Oh, okay, okay. I, ah, I got it now. And, okay. and, 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 there, and therefore, because you're hearing a language from a different culture and you're having a harder time receiving. Yeah. So I, I got, I, I ended up getting something like 180 of these by, um, by just, pounding the pavement and looking at everyone who cites everyone and you know writing to obscure places and and um and it was really consistent that people did better with emotional expressions from their own uh, cultural group and uh, the farther away physically you were the more this there was this gap and you couldn't do this today but i managed to find data about telephone traffic between nations. And the more telephone traffic there was between any pair of nations, the lower the gap. So it's like an emotion gap. And mm. it's bigger when we're farther away and when we communicate less. So, mm. so that was, so that's, so, so you know what happened with that is, and this is about the sociology of science is that everyone said it was wrong. It was wrong. It was wrong. And then all of a sudden, Oh, it's obvious, right? It went from wrong, 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 wrong to obvious. And then why does Hillary get the credit for this? Mm -hmm. So that's how you know, you know, if people are, and, and it made people angry. And I have this good friend, Jim Russell, yeah. who's a, a, a noted psychologist. And he once, asked, he once said to me, you know, I wanted to meet you because you were so brave to go up against Ekman like that. And I said, oh, no, I wasn't brave. I just had no idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, it's coming out of physics and Sanskrit. And, and what, and what that does, we're talking about creativity is how we got into this was, you know, in, in Sanskrit, you think a lot about linguistics and you think about dialects. And yeah. so the idea of coming into this emotions arena and thinking about dialects. And so I actually called it dialect theory, what I was working on. And so it's taking something that's really obvious in one area and taking it to a new area. Can I ask you something that is, this is an egocentric question. I just had a, um, it, it probably has nothing to do with your work, but I, I, I'm very curious what you have to say. We, we have, um, so on the mind under matter podcast recently, I was, I, I guess what I'll, what I'll be getting at is. I'm very curious about personality differences and what something like a character trait like openness would have in this because we were talking about language barriers um, the other day on, on Mind Under Matter. What happened was I, I I went in to get a haircut. There was a language barrier and they cut my 
beard much shorter than I had uh, anticipated. It was like down here. I asked for like two inches off. They went like four to six inches off. And um, but I but I was talking about how how often in certain contexts language barriers can be so fun and interesting and and usually like i've been to so many foreign countries now that i feel like and and maybe this is just um um maybe this is some emotional intelligence or something coming through with nonverbal things but but i i feel like there's i feel like there's um patience given to uh, to someone that isn't speaking the same language i feel like there's i feel like you, you have a little leeway i i can understand their situations people get frustrated i don't know what you're saying whatever but um it, it I, I use the example of the kind of classical idea of the uh romantic idea of like meeting meeting someone that it's English is their second language or whatever. And there's something very appealing to that. And I, I, I see these fun videos on Instagram and stuff where people have their spouse or whatever that can barely speak the English language. And they like make some very cute mistakes and stuff w- within it. And, and there's, I don't know, there, there's, there's something, um, there, so do you, do you think that that's, that maybe has, an aspect of personality like if you're higher in openness and you just tend to gravitate toward novel things and you happen to be um more uh you have a higher tolerance for ambiguity and and things that 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 perhaps that it something like a language barrier is actually more appealing to you it's like, intriguing. it, it yeah. is it's so, it's like i i've I, i've talked to so many people where english is their second language that i'm like i bet if i knew this person's first language i would be bored to tears by whatever they're saying but because we're having this interaction where we're trying to understand yeah. each other there's there's like this cool energy yeah. about it in so a way I have two you know thoughts about this first so my favorite one of my favorite authors pico Iyer, who writes uh beautifully about cross-cultural boundaries his wife actually and he don't have a fluent language in common and i love mm-hmm. that idea and they just they, he, there's he has, something very <laughs> cool and appealing to that because we also <laughs> Uh, well, well, you study emotion. We express ourselves yeah. in so many other ways, other than through and our his words. job is words. So when yeah. you get home, you don't want to. You don't want words anymore. So <laughs> I love that. It's a very prolific word. But the that's other thing really I had interesting. So you were saying that people yeah. give you some leeway when you speak a different language, and I want to hypothesize that's because you're a high status person, Shane. When you meet somebody. Um, who speaks a different language, right? You're a headliner, touring comedian, you're the talent, you're foreign talent. And I think that there's a difference, you know, between let's say expats and immigrants uh, that right, people treat right, immigrants right, right, with right, quite right. a lot of, uh, you know, quite a lot Visceral of disdain and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, you know, learn the you're language, right. you know, speak yeah, English, yeah. go home. Right, and, right, 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 right. And that, but it's the open person who's intrigued rather than, uh, you know, repelled by, by somebody being foreign. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, I, I mean, it, it's not lost on on me. That's that's a part of my like. I mean, I'm six four and just <laughs> brimming with charm and 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> and by the way, you, you score off the charts in openness. Yeah. Uh, by a long shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's my highest trait. Um, but I could we break down? Um, I I feel like I don't want to get you off course if there were things that you were if there was a direction that you're going, but I really loved these things that you, um, that you broke down. One of my questions immediately was when you're talking about awareness and uh, self-awareness, what about being overly self-aware much in the same way that we have these, um, you know, we have people that are off the charts in openness, but there's a reason why there's a chart and it's because we, much of it probably because we evolved to go along this continuum on a spectrum where where people that took chances were favored in some circumstances and people that didn't take chances and played it safe were favored in other circumstances and same with uh, uh, agreeableness or whatever of it. Mm-hmm. obviously being agreeable can get favored in a lot of social By the way, even extroversion, we think of extroversion as a unique positive, but years ago, long before the pandemic, there was research on um, extroverts get more uh, communicable illnesses. You know, introverts are safer from communicable illness. And uh, Yes, of course. <laughs> That's they, so funny. Look at, I look mean, at not it. funny, but, but tragic, whatever. But 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 yeah, the various factors that that so so it's still within a range, uh, usually, and then there, and there's outliers, but it, but it's still within some range, and and so I guess where I was going with, with is this awareness thing because it can because you can be too self aware. It can be debilitating. Yes. Yeah. So I, we're, what I think of to your question is that you can be, you know, that expression, you can be too smart for your own good. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true for emotional intelligence, that you mm-hmm. can, you, you can be too emotionally intelligent for your own good. And so that's a great example with self-awareness, though hyper-awareness can be debilitating. Also emotion recognition, which is the area I do the most work in, which is around nonverbal signals. You can be too good at that for your own good. And I have a paper that I called eavesdropping because if you're exceptionally good at emotion recognition, your colleagues actually find you quite invasive. I mean, imagine if somebody can just read your mind. Wait, wait, wait. Say, say that one more time. So just- I did a study where the people who had exceptionally good emotion recognition skills, particularly for negative emotions, like if I show you a bunch of angry faces and you always get them right, or I show I play a bunch of angry vocal tones for you and you always get them right, your peers, when I, I, I asked the peers and these teams people working in, to rate each other, yeah. your peers find you extremely hard to work with and annoying. If you are so good at reading, even the if if I if, that's amazing. Yeah. Keep going. I'm very not to interested know. in those. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. there are some things that are better not to know. And you see this. You know, there's this um, 
there's a, a paradigm in marital uh, research, and I, I think that it was um, Bill Ickes or De- or or Gottman. I'm I'm forgetting which of the two, but they found when they when they had married couples do a protocol where they they had uh, they they talked to each other, and then afterwards they were asked separately to record what they were saying and thinking, but what they were thinking but not saying at any given mm-hmm. moment. And then their spouse got a list of timestamps, and they were asked at stop the tape at that moment and say what you thought your spouse was was thinking but not saying. And the people who are really good at this for negative emotions had marital problems because there are some things you just want to smooth over the rough edges in life by not noticing, right? Don't go mm. there. Don't notice. You're actually better as a married couple. Not oh, to be- you are <laughs> blowing my mind right now. This is a, okay. Like if Sorry. you know every time yeah. your colleague is irritated, that's a lot of yeah. information that you could get, you could perseverate over. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd rather wow. not know. And, and my husband will listen to really? this. And you know, my husband, I, I, if I, if I could see in vivid color every moment that he's irritated, you know, sometimes you just, it's just noise. If, if you're good at recognizing that, you also need to know why. Right. You need to know the Mm -hmm. why they're irritated. Is it about you? Is it about something else? Is it something that you can solve? And if you, if you take a functional perspective to emotions, there's some reason they're in the gene pool. Right. So even rage or jealousy or hatred, but you know, anger is that anger is in the gene pool because it's about relationship management. So I'm doing something wrong. You show anger and then I fix the problem when it's going yeah. well that's how or, we, or pay we, some cost for not fixing the problem yeah like sometimes anger is itself a punishment and, yeah. and but um but imagine though if you read anger into every little thing right if you imagine if you could detect you know i'm just so glad that people can't read my mind in a meeting in a business mm. meeting because there's just things that you're thinking that you shouldn't say out loud and you choose not to say these things out loud for a reason but if somebody can detect all of that then they're actually pretty unpleasant colleagues sometimes. So you can be too smart. Wow. You can be too emotionally intelligent for your wow. own good. Yeah. Wow. I'll give you another That's example. Really cool. So emotion regulation, a lot of the early research on emotion regulation in the workplace was done by this incredible sociologist, Arlie Hochschild, who embedded herself with Delta flight attendants for a long time, maybe a year, and wrote this brilliant book about it. And she found that the flight attendants, this was in the 80s back when it was still glamorous (laughs) to be a flight attendant. And she found that the flight attendants, you know, they have to act very pleasant, right? Like have a nice day. And they have to put up with a lot of bullshit from passengers. And so they, they had two main strategies for managing their emotions. The first were the people who they, she suppression, she called it suppression. They would just bottle it up. You know, some guys, an asshole, just bottle it up and put a plaster, a smile on your face. And those people were very prone to burnout. But then she had what were called the, the reappraisers. These were the people who, and I think she called this deep acting was the name she had for it. And the, the surface acting were the people who just put a smile on it. There were suppressors. Then there were the people doing deep acting. What they did was they would actually reframe the situation. They would say, you know what? This person's like a toddler throwing a tantrum. They can't help it. I can't, how could you be mad at them? They're just, they're hmm. just scared. They can't help it. You know, and think about, it. you know, you don't get deeply angry at a toddler for throwing a tantrum because they can't control themselves. So these flight attendants were much happier with their job. And, Mm. but you know what though, 
they had problems in their home life because they had lost the ability to they had more more than average more than the other ones they yeah. had problems in yeah. that because wow. they, they lost boundaries they couldn't hold people responsible for bad behavior because they would just will it away and you know you see this in abusive relationships a lot you see a lot of what they call reappraisal so oh wow. you know he only hits me when he's drunk or oh his right. you know his father did that to him he can't help it and and so these flight attendants, right? The ones who wow. they were too good for their own good at regulating wow. their emotions. Because you need to get angry at people who are being assholes. Of course. Yeah, if you regulate yeah. yourself wow. so effectively, you stop this is holding. so cool. <laughs> yeah, I love this. Then I think you need some of these skills in tandem. So if you're really good at recognizing other people's emotions, you need to be really good at regulating your own. Because mm -hmm. if I detect you're pissed at me. I need to, I need to stay calm while dealing with the situation. If I just blow back up at you, I, it would have been better if I didn't even recognize that you were angry to begin with. If that makes sense. Right. Some of you need these things in combination with each other. It's crazy. It's crazy. But by the way, regulation is a huge topic and there's now, um, I've never seen anybody write about it quite like this, but as I read the research out there, I, I think of there being four main categories. So there's the suppression, you know, just put a smile on your face as a flight attendant. There's this reappraisal or also called deep acting where you, you reframe the situation. Like you look for the bright side. Oh, there's the silver lining of COVID. We all have Zoom now. You know, I'm just kidding. That's a horrible thing. You should not do that. You should not reappraise I, I, COVID. I mean, I, 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 I did that. I, I did a lot of reappraisal with COVID. Yeah. I, I did. Uh, that, uh, that's much of what got me through was like, this is an opportunity for me to. Right. For you. But you wouldn't say that all of COVID was worthwhile for. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. No. I agree. No, you've got to reappraise. You've got to find the bright side in things. There Occasionally, there's no bright side, right? Though. But, well, it's, it's also, I mean, as you're saying. I, it, so I, I just went down a wormhole about um, crows recently and um, and, and they have uh, they, they have they have different neural structures than than a lot of birds. A, a lot of corvids have a lot of different neural structures than a lot of birds, which is that they're feedback loops. They, they have feedback loops that a lot of birds don't have so they can reappraise. So they can be taking an action and be reappraising that action at the same time whereas a lot of birds can't and and this is a feature that is like usually pretty much just the domain of primates and and so so i i think that there there's there's something about the the evolution of of humans where this this reappraising ability for as much as it tortures us all of the time, it causes a lot of mental health problems in my life. It's also one of the most special things about being human in some ways. So why don't, don't the think? crows take over the world? Well, they still have pretty small brains. So <laughs> the, the really, <laughs> really, really large. I mean, because they're they're mostly they're mostly mooching off humans. They follow humans around wherever they go. They're like a bunch of empty space and 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 uh, and with with some trees around, and then they scavenge quite a bit. And 
And uh, and so I, I don't think they're I don't think they're worried about taking over. So there's there's so I gave you the first two. So um, suppression and then reappraisal. And then the third is physiological means. And so this is where drugs fit in. This is where um, comfort food fits in. You know, I was, I, when I, when I talk about this, I would say, you know, happy hour, it's called happy hour. It's not called discounted hour, right? And, and comfort food, it's comfortable, right? Chocolate. And then, then there are things like taking a walk. You know, sometimes you say, you know, I, I just don't want to clear my head, go for a walk. And, uh, what else are there? You know, like yoga or mindfulness, breathing, these kinds of, of physiological effects. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last one I find intriguing, which is you don't see a lot written about it, but um, acceptance, that there's this paradoxical effect of accepting your emotions that helps them go away. And uh, so if you and I think the, the best way to describe this is shit happens. And I, I once taught an emotional intelligence workshop um, on an Air Force base and um, and several uh, several enlisted military um, said to me, oh, yeah, we have an expression called um, embrace the suck. Yeah. You know, basic training sucks. Accept it. And then it sucks less, ironically, because you've accepted it. Saying mm-hmm. shit happens like, yeah, like that sucks. Like, you know, you've lost somebody close to you, you know, breathe into that and not, you know, don't, don't drink that away. Don't, you know, there's no, there's so many, only so many walks you can take, right. They're not going to solve um, something tragic in your life, but sometimes you say, you know, yeah, like there's loss. And so that one is, it's intriguing to me. And you know what I, I thought about that one is, you know, when you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, which, which I have done, and I, I stopped drinking at some point because I felt like it was, it was just sort of too much for me. Um, there's, there's this, ex, there's this expression that, um, you, you, know, you have to, you know, it's funny. You can tell I, I didn't go very much because I, I'm going to get the expression wrong, but it, it's, it's this poem or it's, this, it's a prayer that, you know, give me this, give me the strength to, um, change the things I can change the wisdom to accept the things I cannot change or uh, I'm getting it wrong. Okay. You want to, ex- yeah. you want to, you, you want to change the things you can change, accept the things you cannot change. Right. And you We're need the familiar. wisdom to know the difference. And that's, you know, you, you see a lot of, a lot of people who have alcohol problems are kind of control freaks. You know, you want to just change everything, control everything. And sometimes you just have to step back and say, you know what? I can't do anything about this let it go. And that's the, this acceptance route to managing your emotions. Hmm. I, what, what about from, uh, from, uh, so you're very familiar with this interpersonal, um, I, uh, th- these ideas of, of these, uh, how organizations work together, how you form teams, how you manage employees and how, how they interact with bosses think what what about what about these kind of existential um ideas that we have where all of us are now becoming more and more aware of world affairs if uh, if we're on social media or if we're watching the 24 7 cable news cycle or tuning into whatever radio station there's there's uh there's updates it, mostly 
driven by a need for content um, because people are, uh, in my mind, at a lack for things to say about existence, which is ever expanding. And I don't know how you could ever run out of things to say or talk about about existence. But for whatever reason, we, we have this like contained water cooler talk of, of, uh, of like what, what's, what's happening on the news, what war is happening uh, and what happens with these, um, hyper emotionally intelligent people when they, um, when they are considering the plight of humanity. It's crushing. Yeah. I mean, especially if you, I mean, if you go through all of those skills one by one, some will matter more than others in, in this, but I want to, I want to put empathy down there and emotion recognition down there because, you know, empathy, if you, if you see the suffering around you, if you understand what it must mean to people to have, you know, so St. Louis had this biblical flood this week, you know, this once in a century flood. And, and if you, if you really think about what would that do to somebody to lose everything in their apartment, you know, to lose their basement. I have a friend who lost her chickens to drowning. You know, if you really think about what would it feel like to lose these things, then that's crushing in a way that if you don't have that skill, it's, it's less mm-hmm. crushing. Emotion recognition, right? If you see the pain versus if you, you don't, you're not as, you don't have as high fidelity for seeing the pain. So it's crushing. Yeah. It's, I think that, um, that though emotion regulation skill probably makes you less, uh, you know, questioning of everything. And I would say emotional expression skill would probably be, would be just orthogonal, just not, not relevant at all. But these skills can actually change you know, there. They, they, they can vary independently. They still have the positive manifold. On average, they still correlate with each other positively, but they don't, they don't have to in any given person. They can be lumpy. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, this is a really weird time to be alive and there's so much fucked up shit going on right now. I mean, well, you know, not, like, o- not only <laughs> fucked up shit, but we're like aware of it. I mean, <laughs> you know, through human history, there would be people in one part of the world doing some fucked up shit and people in oh, another yeah. per- part of the yeah. world doing some extra fucked up shit. And you just and wouldn't know about it. It's yeah, your, you yeah. would have no idea. Mm-hmm. And and now, mm-hmm. now we all know about all of yeah. it. It's crushing. <laughs> Well, I guess from you asking this question, you feel crushed by it, right? Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. yeah, it's a big motivator in my life. Yeah. But um, you know, it reminds me you of so Stalin. You know, I, so I, I saw that movie, The Death of Stalin. Recently. It was so such a good movie. And there's this. It, it opens with this quote that you know, one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths are a statistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I just don't receive it in the same way. You can't. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, huh. Well, uh, this is this is so interesting. I love your work. I am so excited to have you and your energy. By the way, at my camp out, um, I uh, you're getting a hotel nearby, right? You aren't camping with people. I'm trying. You know, I'm on the waiting list for glamping. 
I'm on the glamping uh, waiting list. Oh, did you look into the glamperali.com and, and there's a waiting list now? Well, they uh, they said they're sold out, but that they might have extras and they will call me. <laughs> that would be oh. my first choice is to glam. He's supposed to tell me that when that happens. Mm-hmm. I'm disappointed well, that I'm hearing in, that from you. Put in a good, good word for me <laughs> to glam. I can figure out. <laughs> Some glamping or an RV situation for you. I, would, I, I didn't know he was sold out already. You know, my so my mother um, had an RV the size of a bus, and uh, it was all decked out. It had a Tempur-Pedic mattress, like back when that was a really big deal. And and uh, I think she just she was running away from stuff in her life. And I think the idea that her whole life could just be running away, like her that mm. she could actually fit her life in a space that itself was on the move was really um, very symbolic for her. And, and uh, so I grew up with, that. I'm not grew up. I was a teenager by the time she had that, but it was, uh, you know, I, I would love to be in an RV. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. That's easy. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about it with you afterwards. All right. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, uh, you're, you're going to be at the mind under matter camp out festival coming up. September 9th, which is a Friday until Sunday the 11th with camping until Monday. And I believe you're going to be on Saturday. We figured that out. I think already, Friday, right? That we'll be, I'll be on Friday. Friday, Friday the 9th. Yes. Okay. So you'll be on Friday. We'll talk about emotional intelligence. It'll be terrific. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Shane. It's so meaningful knowing you. I really, I, I'm just, I'm just delighted uh, by. I, I'm just, I'm just happy to know you. I'm happy to know you. Yeah, thank you so much, and thanks for joining, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Mm-hmm.